Just before we start the episode, we'd like to provide a content warning because this episode does contain discussions surrounding sexual assault and sexual violence more broadly. We encourage any listeners that may feel distressed to please seek out support services such as 1-800-RESPECT. Hey awesome people, huge welcome back to the seventh episode of the second season of Lantern. In case you didn't know, we're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to work out what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Rina Uyang, co-founder of Empower Together, a youth-led organization dedicated to the primary prevention of sexual assault. Now, there's so much to learn from Rina's journey, so we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. So my name is Rina Yang. I am the co-founder of Empowered Together and continue to work on it as an executive member. Um, Empowered Together is a non-profit organisation that's focused on the peer-led primary prevention of sexual violence. And what that means in practice is that we run workshops in schools, generally secondary schools, on the topic of consent. We look at the practical aspect of consent, so not just, I guess, the theory that you must get consent before you engage in sexual acts because we find that a lot of young people tend to know that. But the harder part is how does it actually work in practice? So how do you actually have those conversations about consent? How do you ask for it without it being you know, completely awkward? How do you actually recognize when consent is being given or not given and the nuances in that about body language? And the times when you can't give consent, such as being, you know, very drunk or age and those sort of more, I guess, like grey area um, topics. So that's kind of one aspect of what we do. And then the other aspect is community engagement. So realising that not just young people need education on consent and sexual violence prevention, but the community as a whole. So we also run an online blog, sort of putting our thoughts out there on upcoming topics and also working in our communities more broadly, such as you know doing things like this or speaking at events, um, attending events. We're looking at running a few events coming up as well. And that's just sort of part of our overarching aim to get the conversation going and to see you know how people can really tackle this issue. I'm just curious to know a little bit more, I guess, about the history of Empowered Together. So, so sure. what led you to the, uh, I guess, had that inspiration to co-found it? And... So in answer to that question, I guess it started, so I co-founded it with another friend of mine. And at the time, we were both going through incidents of, I guess, dealing with sexual violence. And we were both kind of only realising, so for me, it kind of happened around that time. And for my friend, the... Um, the realization, I guess, of what had happened to me helped her realize that what had something that had happened to her when she was quite young was actually sexual violence. And in a way, we were kind of learning about the rules of sexual violence and consent for the first time as third-year law students for no other reason other than we were studying criminal law. And that was really scary for both of us because these are core things that you should know before you start engaging in sexual activity not when you're 21 and studying law and it was just crazy to us that we had never been taught it and the more that we talked to our friends the more that we realized how prevalent the issue was but also how little knowledge there was and so initially we actually thought about volunteering so we reached out to organizations thinking there's got to be someone out there who's educating young people and really making a difference from the bottom 
And while there are organisations doing that, I think we, we didn't really quite find what we were looking for. And that was, first of all, that it was led by young people. So we wanted to see 44% of sexual violence actually occurs before the person turns 16. So it is a young person issue, I guess. Obviously, it, it runs across all ages, mm. but it does have a predominant impact on young people. So we wanted to see a movement that was led by young people for young people. Mm. And obviously, when you're trying to educate young people, the further that you get from that age group, the more kind of disjointed you are from their terminology and their understanding and their culture. And we just didn't find an organisation that was youth-led. We also found that other organisations tended to be quite gendered. So often, you know, boys and girls are split into different groups and the girls are told, here's how you avoid being sexually assaulted and that can be quite victim blaming. Mm -hmm. And then the boys are kind of given a really fear mongering talk of, you know, don't do this, don't do that, because then you'll be a perpetrator of sexual violence. And that's very kind of incredibly isolating for both genders and immediately I think puts the boys on the defensive and the girls kind of on the fearful side. Mm. And I guess what we were looking for was something that was more about talking to everyone about their rights and responsibilities. And that was also inclusive of people who didn't necessarily fit into those, you know, very stereotypical historical gender groups. Mm. And so I guess that's kind of why we decided to create Empowered Together because there just wasn't anything out there that kind of tackled this issue the way that we thought it should be tackled. That being said, we still work with those organisations because all organisations play a role in this. But I think where Empowered Together fits is that we are youth-led. We can talk to young people in a way that is kind of a bit more open and a bit more realistic about what consent is and is inclusive. So that's kind of what we stand for. And that's kind of what led us to starting Empowered Together. Okay. And I'm just curious if you sort of identified any sort of barriers that may have prevented sort of young people like yourselves from starting an organisation like this earlier, because as you said, it was sort of missing from the space. Was there anything that was sort of preventing that from happening? I mean, there's a few things. I think in general, youth-led organisations are rare Mm. because there's this kind of expectation that you go to high school, you go to university, you get a job, and then you can make a difference. Whereas it's sort of like, well, no, you can actually start doing stuff before that. And I think there's been a real movement in that space lately. There are huge organisations like, you know, Oak Tree that are youth-led, and that I think that's great. But I definitely think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is that it is a really, it's a sensitive issue. It's so hard to tackle. There's no easy solution. And so I think that maybe can put young people in a position where they sort of think, well, who am I to be able to tackle this huge issue when, you know, the adults can't? Yeah, I think, I guess that's my view on maybe why that is the case. And people shy away from things that are controversial or sensitive. And you did mention this a little bit um, when you were talking about Empowered Together, but I'm just more curious of looking into why specifically the targeting of high school students and sort of within that, um, what age range are you typically doing? Like, is it from year seven to 12 or is it more at the later age in that respect? So we, I guess, the way that we decided which group to tackle was based on demand and also, I guess, like where we thought we could actually get in. So primary school is a very difficult place to be talking about these issues. Mm -hmm. Not that I think it's not necessary, because it is, 
but it can be a little bit more sensitive in that parents sort of go, well, we don't want you to be talking to our, you know, 10-year-old or 8-year-old about, you know, sex, which is, in and, and one aspect, understandable, but there are great organisations out there who are doing, I guess, a more censored version. So that just talking about, you know, your personal boundaries and respect for relationships and respect and how we treat one another. Um, so that's really great. I guess where we felt we could be most powerful was talking to young adults who really had just honest questions and confusion mm -hmm. that we could just have really down-to-earth conversations with. Year 9 to 10 is a good, is kind of where we target. So we run all high school, but we tend to get more work in Year 9 and 10. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is, I guess, that's when schools traditionally see students to start becoming sexually active. It is also when a lot of students might be starting their first relationships or even starting their first jobs and might be dealing with sexual harassment. And it's when they will probably start having a lot of questions around this area. So I think traditionally, I think the research shows that the average age that someone first has sex is like 15 to 16. That being said, we would almost like to start earlier because the, the, the principles that we teach about consent and being respectful aren't just isolated to the traditional notion of sex. They apply just as equally to sexing, which we see happening as young as 11, 12, 13. Um, kissing, which is, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, kind of in that age bracket as well. And so it's just as important to do it beforehand. But that's kind of a battle that we have with schools sometimes where we're trying to say it's so much better for you to educate students before they engage in any of this activity because that's what prevention is mm. whereas schools will tend to be a bit more reactive and say now that our students are sexually active now we want you to start coming in and talk to them so that's I guess we are equipped to deliver across all high school and we do also do some university sometimes but that's quite a different offering but we do tend to traditionally get work year 9 to 10. How sort of receptive have high schools been to these workshops and was it a bit more of a struggle when Empowered Together sort of first began and then did it become sort of more open to those sort of workshops? So Empowered Together is only about three years old so we're still quite a new organisation. Most schools are probably still not really heard of us and we still kind of consider ourselves almost still in startup phase in a way. How schools react is quite varied. So you have some schools who go, wow, this is great. Great to hear that you're out there. Would love to have you on board. But I think traditionally schools are conservative and they're, they're concerned about spending money on something that they're not sure about or they haven't really heard of before. Pair that with the controversial, I guess, subject that we're talking about, it can be quite difficult. And I know that our schools team who are amazing and are the kind of first point of contact with schools do have to have some challenging conversations to sort of, it's almost like two barriers. You've got to get them to come around on the topic and then you've got to, got to get them on board with us as the provider. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not an easy process, but I think, you know, it's almost, I mean, obviously it's awful, but the current environment in terms of the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein all the conversation that's been happening around that has really kind of propelled action in the schools to really educate their students on this. So the fact that that environment is currently existing has helped for really being able to say to schools, this is a worldwide problem that you need to be tackling now. But yeah, it is, it is quite varied depending on how schools are. And schools are just, they have so much going on. You know, I feel so much sympathy for the teachers who 
Um, traditionally, I only had to educate students on maths and English, and now they also have to ed- equip them with these life skills. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot for them to have to do. So obviously, they have their own deadlines and things they're being measured on. So it can be kind of overcoming those logistical barriers as well. I think it also, as you've mentioned before, highlights that there's definitely a gap in the current school curriculums. Why do you think these gaps exist? Is it because schools haven't been able to update and facilitate it? Because you also mentioned that they have so many pressures already. It can kind of be hard to provide that totally encompassing um, education. Yeah. I think that's definitely part of it. So Victoria as a state is probably one of the more more forward states on this issue. We obviously had our own Royal Commission into Family Violence and a lot of initiatives came from that. And one of them is the rolling out of a curriculum, a statewide curriculum called Respect for Relationships. And it runs from prep to year 12, which is great. And it's such a great resource for schools. I think the problem is that there's not much support around the implementation. Mm. So schools often get delivered this like giant folder of paper and go teach this to your kids. And they're sort of going, where? Like, where do I fit this in? How do I teach it? Mm. That's definitely one aspect. I think the other aspect is that, man, like, I don't think teachers want to be having these conversations. Like, Mm. you know, when you're trying to teach the students maths and English, and that's kind of the relationship you have, and then you get told, can you please talk to them about sex? It, it can be really intimidating for teachers to even know where to start. And kind of the other way around, it's awkward for students. So they often don't want to be having these conversations with a teacher that they have to see day after day after day after day, which is why I think sometimes there's so much benefit in having an external educator come in because we can have these conversations with kids in a really kind of open manner and they can be almost assured that we're then going to leave and they don't have to see us ever again if they've said something that they feel is awkward. That being said, we, we do really value the, the role that schools can play and the role that teachers can play. Obviously, we're only there for an hour and a half and then we're gone. Mm. So for us to really have impact, we do need to work with the schools and we 100% appreciate that and always like to leave schools with resources that they can continue on with and keep the communication going with them and support them as much as we can to see that kind of whole school culture change as opposed to just this one and a half hour session that might make a difference for a few days and then, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of fades with everything else. So it is that schools need a lot more support and it is kind of having to figure out how we can work with the school in helping them do that. What's your approach to, I guess, engaging with that community at large and how do you make sure that you're not just sort of reaching out to people that may be already supporting the cause, like sort of how to diversify that as well? That's a really good question and something that we think about a lot. So obviously people who follow us on Facebook and who might read our blog probably are on our side, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that question that you asked about how do you reach people that you actually want to kind of be reaching and making that change is still something that we struggle with. There's not really, I don't think that it's something, it's something that we're only really starting to think about now and I guess the way that we do that is by going to making ourselves just active in the community so we'll often go to events that might not particularly kind of be with an audience that fully supports kind of what we're doing so for example we'll often talk to parents who might not be massive fans of what we're doing in terms of they think that it's controversial or they think you know if you talk to my kids about sex you're going to encourage them to have sex so that's really difficult for us because obviously it's the opposite of what we believe. 
And so having to have those conversations with them about, well, if we don't talk to your student or your children about sex, where are they going to go to learn? Oh, it's going to be porn. <laughs> and wouldn't you rather, yeah, wouldn't you rather them be able to talk to a real person about it and have a real com- conversation other than, you know, seeing the skewed vision of what sex is from porn? You're not going to win everyone over. There's always going to be haters. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's a really good point. And it's something, as I said, we're still working on as well, how to change the mindset of of other groups and in a way we almost we almost sometimes cheer when we get negative comments on our Facebook because it's like great like someone that we can you know challenge a little bit um, as opposed to I mean, I mean we love the support as well <laughs> um, but you know it is yeah it is about broadening that and not just you know having everyone be a cheerleader but also hearing the other side and knowing where it is that we need to do a little bit more work. Um, and sometimes that's even in our workshops like we'll have students who challenge us and say you know young teenage boys who might be of the idea that girls will always say no because they want to play it shy or whatever and you've got to like encourage them and that's just part of the game and then so we, you, we know we need to unpack that and challenge that and that can sometimes almost be some of our best workshops because we can really see that wow if we hadn't had this workshop that would have that you know that idea would have continued down the track and even if we haven't completely changed their minds, we've put some some thoughts there that they can now dwell on and hopefully the school will build on. So, yeah, I think it's definitely important for us to be engaging with people who don't necessarily support our cause. But that being said, it can be hard to reach those people. So the facilitators, when they're in these sessions, how have they sort of had that experience? Because I can imagine it can be quite a confronting topic to talk about. So how do they sort of find that process? Our facilitators are such amazing people, all of them are really passionate about this topic but as you as you said and rightly so it can be very confronting and we always worry about the kind of vicarious trauma that our facilitators might be experiencing especially where there's a disclosure in the workshop and they kind of have to handle that so we do always debrief with our facilitators afterwards we make sure that they're well supported we have contacts sort of through support networks that we can always refer them to and we do try to stagger it so they're not I guess not overwhelmed doing too many workshops at once. So our facilitators always work in pairs as well, which can really help because you've got the support of another facilitator if you do get those really hard questions or have to have those really hard conversations. And then, yeah, with with us debriefing and all our facilitators are trained on first response to disclosures. So if they do hear a disclosure from a student, they kind of know how to manage that, but also recognizing our limits. So we're not we're not counselors, we're not qualified to be helping a student through something like that. And so we do always refer it on and obviously put it back on the those amazing support organizations who are out there and who are equipped to deal with this kind of thing. So I guess it is sort of recognizing our boundaries and providing as much support as we can to our facilitators. One last thing, I guess, sort of around facilitators. How are you currently approaching recruiting almost those facilitators? Is it like through personal networks or has it been particular people you're looking for? Are they all students or are they professionals in the space? So being a youth-led organisation, I mean, we don't really have a strict age kind of cut off, mm. but generally our facilitators are under 30. That We tend to work with a lot of uni students and the great thing is that we don't So we do obviously like facilitators who have a background in education or who understand that. And obviously that kind of works both ways because people who are studying studying education really want the opportunity to be able to work with young people. So that's a great kind of win-win situation for us. But we also do like facilitators from just a really diverse 
range of faculties or not studying or whatever it is. Because we find that students will often identify with a specific type of facilitator. And so it's good to have varieties that, you know, you might have one group of students who really identifies with a facilitator from because of what they're studying, where they grew up or their experiences. And so that really is great for us because we don't just have one type of facilitator who only one group can identify with. So it is quite varied. In terms of how we recruit, it can sometimes be through personal connections. So sometimes it'll be, you know, someone who's volunteering with us now and then one of their friends would be a great facilitator. And that's great as well. And it's actually often people reaching out to us. So someone might contact us and say, hey, you know, I saw your website, see what you're doing, would love to be involved. We obviously do a proper screening of all facilitators. So interviewing, recruitment, as in background checking. So all our facilitators need a working with children's check. And we'll always call references to make sure that we're obviously creating a safe place for all the people that we work with. And then sometimes when we are really short on facilitators, we'll do um, kind of external recruitment as well. So advertising the role Mm. externally. Just one last thing. You mentioned that sort of collaboration Mm. with existing organisations is really important. I was just curious to know some of those relationships that you may have developed with the space and who sort of is active uh, in that area at the moment who's sort of helping out the cause. That's kind of where our name comes from, Empower Together. Like We always do think it's so important to work with other people and other organisations. We recognise that the role that we play is just a tiny part of the puzzle. There's so much else that needs to be done. So there's organisations out there who, for example, are t- tackling hypermasculinity, which are really great, you know, and that's one, another part of the puzzle. There's all the support organisations who are providing support, and that's another part of the puzzle. Then you've got organisations who might be focused on religious sectors, so organisations that work with the Jewish community or the international community or the refugee community, and they're all playing their role as well. For example, we so appreciate the organisations that gave us help when we were starting. And it's funny because we were almost a bit concerned that they would be competitive, you know, like, no, you know, like, don't come in and take our work. But that's completely the opposite. And that's one of the great things about this sector is that we've all got the same goal. Mm. And I remember that when we were working with the Centre Against Sexual Assault, who's kind of the key body, and they do a lot of great work in this area. When we met with them to sort of ask them if they thought that we had a role to play, they were sort of like, yeah, please, like, we're never going to reach all the schools. We're never going to reach all the people who need to be educated. So the more people that are in the sector, the better. And she was kind of like, you know, if you put us out of work, that would be the best thing. Um, And that's kind of our goal as well. If there's a day where we don't have to exist anymore, like, that would be great. (laughs) Because either the schools are all doing it and it's embedded in the curriculum. So, you know, you don't really need external educators. Then we can move on and play another role. Or if it is, you know that everyone is just so clued on about consent and sexual violence that nobody needs to be taught it anymore. Like, that would be great as well. So, yeah, we we work with organisations that are addressing either the same issue as us but in a different way, and that's really important, or kind of peripheral issues like hypermasculinity, like gender equality or gender literacy. That's all really great as well because, again, it all kind of feeds into that same goal of trying to bring down these really awful statistics about sexual violence. I'd love to sort of, I guess, get your thoughts on some of the issues that have sort of come up within the sort of sexual mm-hmm. assault space. So I thought a good one that we might like to start with, so just around this victim blaming culture, and I just want to sort of know your thoughts on 
I guess, how we can best respond to a situation of victim blaming and how we can yeah. sort of try and stop this harmful approach, whether it's done by media or like friends or things like mm. that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a role that everyone can play. Again, you know, this is kind of what we talked about when we talk about the bystander approach is that sometimes people will think, God, this is just such a huge issue. Like, I am, have no energy to deal with any of this and there are people out there doing their thing and it's great. But there, there really is a role that everyone can play. And as you said, it can just be as simple as working with your friends. So if you see, if you're seeing kind of harmful behaviour by some of your friends, whether that is, you know, a friend sends you uh, an intimate image they've taken of their partner or their partner's taken of them or just any person and they share it around and they go, hey, like, look at this. You can sort of say, you know, is that, have you asked for their permission to be sharing that photo? Do you know that that's not allowed? Do you know that you can now be fined up to $100,000 for doing something like that? Because new legislation's just come in. So that's just can be part of it. Or even just having conversations with your friends about it, you know, saying, look, that comment that you made last night when we were all out, I might have laughed at the time, but now that I've reflected on it, I actually don't think that rape joke was appropriate. And that can be a really hard conversation to have. It's something that I still struggle with. So much easier just to laugh it off and go, oh, you know, he, he didn't mean it. It was just a joke. Mm. But the reality is that we have the research that shows that that kind of um, activity and that kind of talk kind of does contribute to the, the culture that perpetuates sexual violence. So that's definitely one part of it. And I think the other part of it is, yes, you're right, the media is quite can be quite victim blaming. And for example, the way that they report sexual assaults, there's been some really great research that shows that it swaps, the language swaps from active to passive, you know? So instead of he robbed her, it's she was sexually assaulted. And so the onus is kind of, you know, so oh so subtly shifted. And then I guess like the role that we could play in that is again, calling out that behavior. So, you know, letting the newspaper outlets know, I thought you're reporting on that that piece of work was shocking <laughs> because you blamed the victim or just, you know, being really critical about that kind of stuff. And, you know, again, talking to people about it, so saying, you know, with, for example, was it Eurydice Dixon, when that all went down, the comments made by that police officer where he was sort of like, oh, well, you know, if you walk alone at night, that's the risk you take. And, you know, that's that was broadcasted nationally. and. You know, it really makes me fearful of the people who heard that and went, right, okay, that makes sense. So I guess like if if you were a parent or you were a friend and you heard that to be touching base with your kids or your friends and saying, hey, you know that comment, wasn't that totally inappropriate? So that you are, we are reinforcing the right message out there. So yeah, there's a million different ways that each individual can play a role in preventing that kind of victim blaming behavior. I'm also curious because I know Empowered Together's approach is mainly one around education. Do you feel as if there will ever be sort of enough or are there other sort of ways to tackle the issue that need to be part of the space as well? Um, Definitely, yeah. So as I said before, we're only a small piece of the puzzle. Um, Education is really important. But again, we're educating young people. So there needs to be education of, for example, educating board members even of, of how they can create a culture of this or educating workplaces on how they can tackle sexual harassment, educating media reporters on how they can ethically report these issues, 
education is such a broad area and we're only you know a piece of that there can be education in a broad range of spaces but yeah I agree education itself isn't enough we do sometimes need so for example support is obviously one aspect so providing people with support we focus on primary intervention sorry primary prevention so that's before it even happens but there's also levels of secondary prevention so there are organizations out there that work with perpetrators to really change the culture and be able to tackle right so why is it that you're doing this and can you understand that it's not appropriate and how can we change your behavior and that's really important as well so perpetrator intervention you've also got for example which is a whole other issue in its own is the justice system so the fact that sexual assault is one of the lowest reported crimes because it's so difficult to get justice and even if you do report it only 30 percent of those cases actually result in a criminal conviction and even if you got your criminal conviction i think the average period of incarceration is like 12 months or something so it's sort of not even worth putting yourself through that process and that does create a perception that you can get away with it so it is you know it's a a web of change that we need and it's sometimes overwhelming for us because we sort of go oh my god there's so many things that we need to do Mm -hmm. and we're only you know we're only doing this thing and but it doesn't change because of all these other things but I think it is just recognizing that all these different things have to slowly shift into place and they're not one-off solutions it is really something that needs to change and then continuously improve along the way. Mm, I think you definitely read my mind because I was going to bring up the legal system (laughs) and um, I love opinions on it so I'd just love to get your thoughts and what sort of reform would be needed in that space to try and improve it and support people who are affected by these issues? So I might have mentioned this before, but Victoria is really kind of one of the better places that have been really taking action on this. So we've seen a lot of legislative change in this area because of the Royal Commissions that we've had. So for example, now it's a criminal, I guess it's like a criminal crime not to report sexual assault that's been perpetrated by an adult against a child under 16 so that applies to all adults in Victoria so that really kind of steps up the kind of responsibility for people to report and that is really important for kind of lifting this culture of secrecy that we have where organizations might kind of cover up these things that are happening now you can be in prison for up to two years so that's a really key fundamental change Something also that recently got passed, I think it was only a few weeks ago, is a civil penalty around sexting. So if you share an intimate image of someone without their consent, first of all, there's the e-safety commissioner who can demand that that photo gets, or video gets taken down. And if you don't comply with that notice, you can be fined up to $100,000 for an individual, and then it's like 500,000 for a company. So again, there are so many ways that the, the law is trying to tackle this issue, which is great, and that's a huge part of it. But again, like the law can only do so much. But it, it, you know, the laws are there, they've always been there. It's great that they're changing. Um, there's even been change around consent laws. So now it's not no means no, it's yes means yes. So unless you've got the yes, it's, it's a no. So kind of those arguments of, you know, she didn't say no, she didn't say anything, no longer fly. The question's going to be, well, did you have a conversation? Did they say yes? And if they didn't, then that's a no. And there's also laws around what you can and can't ask someone who's being questioned. So you can no longer ask a survivor of sexual violence, what were you wearing? 
you know, have you had sex with this person before? Did you have anything to drink? That being said, it's still incredibly difficult to access the justice system. So first of all, you, you still have to testify. So you've still got to go up on that stand. You've got to look that person who you're accusing in the face and kind of recount the whole story. That's really difficult. You've got problems with, I mean, I think the police officers that we've worked with have been great, but there is obviously, you know, some who, who might not, who might make that process difficult as well. You kind of have to overcome the societal blame. So if you're accusing someone, especially for example, if it was someone who is either famous or has stature in the community, you've got to deal with kind of the, the hate that's going to come at you. You're making it up, blah, blah, blah. Even though we know that less than 2% of claims are actually made up. So again, it does sort of come down to the laws are there. They've been improved. They can still be improved, but they've taken, you know, taken leaps and bounds. The legal system as a whole, we still need more support around that. And then obviously the broader community attitudes as a whole plays a role in that as well. But yeah, I mean, we could do a whole other <laughs> talk on that. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot in there. And it's not really the space that we work in, mm. but we do recognize that it's a huge problem for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, thank you so much for your thoughts on that. And that, I think there's just one last area I want to uh, sort of target on before we kind of wrap up. How else can we sort of address maybe some of these toxic cultures that may even inadvertently lead to sort of like these sexual assault cultures and rape cultures around it? Like what are the sort of things, like say for example, like within universities or within residential colleges and stuff like that, yeah. what are some things that we can do to try and change those narratives? Uh, and again, that's a very big question to end yeah. on. I just didn't know if you had any thoughts you would like to share on that, please. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult and I still think, you know, kind of what I said before about the role that each person can play definitely stands true, but it does also need to be organisational change. So universities need to step up and recognise that potentially they need to put safeguards in place. So for example, university camps are like just a really, really bad environment for kind of a risk for that kind of activity there's no like university staff who go on those often it's older students you know supervising younger students so we're talking about you know 23 21 year old supervising 18 year olds like it's not that much of a difference at the same time though you've got this really weird power dynamic where you might have you know, these 18-year-olds who just want to fit in and who, who want to make friends and who, who want to be a part of this university culture, who are just learning how to drink, who might just be sexually active. With You might have students as old as on law camp. You know, we had students in their sixth year, so what's that, 23? And then there's often sexual activity between the leaders and the students. And, and you know, that's a really messy situation because no one's saying the younger person, the 18-year-old might say, I said yes, but how much control did they have to say no to someone who's 26 and who's the only supervisory power there and who might be, you know, president of the society or whatever? It makes it really difficult. And again, I think universities kind of go, not on our grounds, so we're going to wash our hands of that. But it does need to kind of, they need to step up and take a bit of responsibility around that. So organisations have a huge role to play and that's what the whole Royal Commission into kind of institutional responses to child abuse was about. Not just saying, well, you know, we weren't the perpetrators so it's not our fault, but saying how can you really proactively put in some strategies to minimise 
these risks from occurring and that's huge as well or how can you educate your older students on on how to manage that or your staff members that's really crucial as well I mean it's so difficult for just you know kind of your everyday person but I think about young people now so people who are 20 whatever eventually they're going to be the CEOs and they're going to be the the ministers and they're going to be the ones who are making these decisions so if they can get themselves across these issues now when they move up into those roles they'll be able to make that really widespread institutional change not to say that you can't do that now by you know being an advocate in your workplace or even I had a really great example the other day where one of my friends went to like his work party and his kind of his action for that day, which was so simple, was just to text each of his female coworkers in the team afterwards and say, hey, did you get home safe? That's so simple. It's so easy, but it's just kind of a, a very small message of I made sure, I, you know, I'm looking out for you. I want to make sure that you got home safe. And, you know, he got those messages back. So it doesn't have to be gendered. It's not like, you know, men look out for the women. It's everyone just look out for each other. If you, for example, you do see one of your friends taking public transport home at two in the morning, maybe just say, look, maybe you should get in an Uber. Or, hey, just message me when you get home. Kind of those, like, little steps. And, again, calling that inappropriate behaviour, I think, that those little things are going to be what changes the culture and that that will make such a huge difference. Thank you so much. Um, now, I know there's a lot of stuff that we did touch on, but I guess was there anything else that you felt we may have missed or anything that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, no, I might just do a quick plug and say mm, that if course. anyone knows any rural or low SES schools, that you think could really benefit from this kind of workshop, please let us know because we do still have funding that we'd really like to use to um, have those conversations with those schools. Cool, perfect. And I guess just the one final last question sure. before we fully, fully wrap up. <laughs> I guess are there any sort of books, films, media, anything in general that you'd recommend to any listeners? There's actually something that I just watched on Netflix, which was Hannah Gadsby's, I think, Nanette. So she's a comedian and she talks about um, the kind of gender stereotypes that are imposed in society. And that's not kind of directly related to sexual violence, but it does feed into that idea that we have around, you know, what your gender is supposed to be. And if you're in that gender, the person that you're supposed to be. So I think that's really great. Um, there's a really great book, I think it's called Eggshell Skull. We might need to fact check that. Um, and that's about, it's a really powerful book written by a woman who has gone through sexual violence and she talks about kind of the route that she took to get support and to get help in that area. Those are the ones that spring to mind. But no, that is a good question. I'll have to think. There's a lot out there. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you.